Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne on the podcast tonight. Scientists have discovered the oldest and largest black hole ever. How did they do it? And what does it add to our understanding of how the universe was created? We find out. And from deep space to Sesame Street, we meet the show's first black woman to work as a core puppeteer. Megan Pipus Peace takes us behind the scenes of the legendary kid show to explain how she'd landed the role of Gabrielle, why she gave up a pretty promising start in commercial real estate, and which Sesame Street Muppet really bowled her over in person. On a little more true crime, we revisit the unsolved 2008 murder of Victoria real estate agent Lindsay Buziak. Police know it was a targeted attack against the 24-year-old, but despite thousands of leads and hundreds of interviews over the years, even a new task force set up in 2021, still, to this day, no arrests and no suspects named. Her father, Jeff Buziak, vowed he would never stop fighting to find the truth, and he joins me to talk about his daughter and this case. But first, a long-time and very close friend of Winnipeg-born Israeli-Canadian peace activist Vivian Silver joins me to talk about the 74-year-old's remarkable life and legacy. There had been hope for weeks that she was being held hostage in Gaza, but it was confirmed on Sunday that she'd in fact been killed in the initial Hamas attack on her kibbutz in southern Israel back on October the 7th. Lynn Mitchell tells us about her friend's lifelong commitment to peace and how she would like her to be remembered. Let's start tonight with uh, the memory of Vivian Silver. Friends, family, colleagues from right around the world have been paying tribute to the Winnipeg-born Canadian-Israeli peace activist. Um, it was thought that perhaps she had been taken hostage from Kibbutz Berry in southern Israel back on October the 7th, following that horrific Hamas attack on the region. But it turned out um, that instead she had been she had been killed that very first day. It took them a very long time. Her house had been burned to the ground. It took uh, authorities a long time to identify some of the burned out remains. So her family had been holding out hope. We talked to her son about two weeks ago uh, in Israel that they'd been holding out hope that maybe, just maybe, she had been taken and that she could be released and returned to her family safe and sound. We now know that's sadly not going to happen. The Prime Minister paid tribute to her today. Have a listen. Vivian dedicated her life to peace and a bright light was extinguished on October 7th. Her courage commitment and compassion exemplifies what it means to be a Canadian, what it means to be engaged in the world in positive ways. She will be deeply missed. May her memory be a blessing. The 74-year-old moved from Winnipeg to Israel in the 70s. She had been involved in all sorts of projects over the years. Uh, she lived on a kibbutz right near the Gaza border. Uh, she became acquainted with the local Bedouin community and Gazans as well. She served as the executive director for the Negev Institute for Strategies of Peace and Development. She founded a group after she retired called Women Wage Peace, an interfaith grassroots organization. Again, we spoke with Silver's son, Yonatan Zygen, from Tel Aviv, on October 26th about the hope against hope that maybe she would come back. Here's what he had to say. It's really a horrifying experience. But yeah, we, we're holding on to hope and optimism that if she is there and alive, then there are chances that she will come back. 
That's her son, Yonatan Zygen, who we interviewed on the show, who I interviewed on the show back on October the 26th. So a very sad day for all those who knew her. And that includes some very close friends here in Canada. Lynn Mitchell is one of them, a longtime friend. They grew up together in Winnipeg. They've stayed at each other's homes over many, many decades. And Lynn Mitchell joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight and our condolences. Thank you, Ben. You know, I, I interviewed Lynn's, uh, I interviewed Vivian's son, uh, Yonatan, a couple of weeks ago. We were just talking about what an amazing woman she, she is, was, and what an incredible career that she had. But you met her when you were very young. Very, we often don't talk about her Winnipeg days, but Yonatan said something interesting. He said he always felt his mother carry a little piece of Canada with her the whole time she was in Israel. I think that's a very astute observation on Yonatan's part. And I, I know that uh, Vivian vis- returned to Canada many times as recently as this this past summer when she stayed with us here in Toronto, stayed with me, with Yonatan and Chen and, and um, Chen's wife and grandson. Uh, they had a family wedding here. And, uh, you know, she did very Canadian things. She went on a bike trip uh, with her sister to the vineyards in Niagara-on-the-Lake. I think that Vivian and I both grew up in the north end of Winnipeg. In that community, there were different ethnic groups living side by side who had experienced war together, uh, the Second World War. Uh, we were representatives of all the ethnic groups that that were in, in that war, and we all more or less got along. We figured out a way to do it. We went to school together, and uh, we got along. And I think that uh, that model uh, was probably part of what stayed in Vivian's heart. And it was also a very progressive and tolerant area of the city. I think that that was part of what Vivian carried with her as well. And when we were very young, we were very idealistic. And, you know, as young teenagers in Winnipeg, there wasn't much to do. So we joined various youth groups and assumed leadership roles. And in our idealism, tried to find ways to make the world a better place. I know that that's where a lot of it started for Vivian. Um, So maybe that's the little part of Canada and Winnipeg that Vivian carried in her heart that Yonatan noticed, along with all the, you know, the Canadianisms that she used daily in her vocabulary. It's hard to imagine anyone who, who spent as many years extending as long an olive branch into into Gaza as Vivian Silver did, uh, and and just you know her her life's work and and sort of reading about helping people get paid properly, helping people make it to medical appointments properly. I mean, she cared deeply about peace in this part of the world that she chose to call home for the lot for several decades. Yes, and I think that all the examples that you used were examples of how she lived peace, how she lived shared society, how she lived coexistence. That's how she saw to do it uh, through her life. And she made connections uh, in the Palestinian community and in the community in Gaza. I, uh, I know she had friends there. I, my husband and I had the privilege of going with her. Uh, this was probably around two, the year 2000 in one of the trips we made to Israel. And it always included a visit with with Vivian and a stay with her. She took us to Gaza and we visited with her friends there. They invited us into her into their home. We had lunch with them. We met their family. I have pictures of Gaza. They drove us around the streets. I saw the markets. It started to feel like 
peace was possible. But that's how Vivian lived her life with connections and friendships and on the ground peace. And it started to feel like that's how you make peace. But then I guess world events got in the way. You visited her at Kibbutzberry, as you mentioned numerous times. You would have, I imagine few would have been able to picture it as well as you could have pictured it, unfortunately, on the day of the 7th. Did she ever talk about the threat? Did she ever, was she ever worried about when you were there? Were you ever concerned about what sort of, what might happen if things were to go wrong? I, oh, I, I think so. I mean, the, the, when we were there in May, that the weekend, uh, we were supposed to come, I, I think, Monday or Tuesday to Barry to be with her. Uh, we'd already spent some time with her in Tel Aviv, but we were coming to stay with her on the kibbutz in her, in her home. The kibbutz was under rocket attack from Gaza, and the Barry was evacuated that weekend, and Vivian was evacuated. So we, you know, the, the threat was very real all the time. And she knew that there was a, a possibility that she wouldn't be back in time. She wouldn't be able to go back. But as the world turned, she was able to go back and we were able to go and visit her and stay with her on Kibbutz Bari. So we have very recent memories going back to May of her home, of Vivian, of the Kibbutz none of which exist anymore. That must be incredibly tough to process. It's a very surreal juxtaposition. But what I also wanted to say, Ben, was that how she lived her life was how, when you asked if she was worried and afraid, how she lived her life by making connections and trying to, to, you know, to, to coexist. That's how she tried to keep herself and her community and her family and her country safe. That's how she tried to do it. It's a walking, workable legacy to continue that, to try and do that, to find your partners for that, and to continue the shared vision for peace. Lynn Mitchell is a longtime friend of Canadian-Israeli peace activist Vivian Silver, who we now know was killed on October the 7th in the initial Hamas attack on her kibbutz, Barry, in southern Israel. Uh, it was suspected she may have been taken hostage. That was uh, when I spoke with her son a few weeks ago. That was the hope against hope that perhaps she could be alive and would come back safely. And it turns out that as of uh, that, she'd been killed actually on that first day. Uh, Lynn, that must have been for the whole family. I mean, I know Yonatan was talking about just clutching to that hope, but also trying to be realistic about it too, because he didn't want to get his hopes up too much in case that was not what had happened. It must have been the same for everybody who loved Vivian, that you were, everyone was thinking, oh, just hopefully, but who knows? Yes, it was a real uh, roller coaster ride uh, from thinking that first day on October 7th. I know Yonatan for the first little while and Chen believed that she had been lost. And then gradually, gradually, as all the, you know, as the chaos continued, but then as they were able to, as people were able to, a few days later, actually go on to Kibbutzberry and visit her home, I mean, they they saw that it had been, in Yonatan's words, burnt to a crisp, but there was no body. They didn't find her body. They didn't find her remains. There was some possibility that she had been seen being abducted, and then her phone was found to be uh, located in Gaza. So she went from missing to believed abducted, and that that began another roller coaster ride of of hope and 
sort of the vortex of hope. You know, you go down that vortex and you hope and you pray that through diplomatic and, and, you know, political means, the hostages can be released and that Vivian would be alive. And uh, that went on for, for weeks. And I think you, you met with Jonathan at, at, at an intersection of that vortex when he was still hoping. And, um, but all the while, I think being 50% reserved as to what was, what was really going on. And then yesterday, finding out that uh, her remains had been identified uh, and that she had, in fact, been murdered on the 7th. It feels like I, I was thinking that when I saw that, uh, thinking about what she would make of all that's happened since that moment and, and her le- a legacy and her life's work. It seems uh, almost inconceivable that everything she fought and built for the kibbutz as well is gone. And it feels like maybe the only thing that can be left behind is what she fought for, because physically all almost everything is gone, but her ideas aren't. But it feels like her ideas are sort of been shoved into the background a little bit these days. And I'm wondering what you think she would want her legacy to be. Well, I think Vivian went through various permutations and combinations of how to create peace. And I think her last um, incarnation of how to do peace was women wage peace. And that was the group that she helped to found after her retirement, where the hope was that women from all backgrounds, Palestinian, Israelis, Palestinians, you know, Israeli, Jewish Israelis could come to Christians could come together and put pressure on their respective leaders and politicians to come together and to make peace. And at the risk of sounding like Pollyanna in Dante's Inferno here, you know, when you're trying to make sense of how such a a person who believed in such nonviolence could come to such a violent end, we have to say because it's not over yet. And because violence has not created peace, that uh, we have to keep trying with our partners for peace, but it, it has to be a shared vision and a shared effort to find our way to that. We're just not there yet. Any last thoughts about, about, I mean, often, I mean, we all have best friends, right? Any, anything that jumps to mind after all the decades that you spent together, there must be something that springs to mind when you think of her, even, even today. Well, at, at the risk of starting to be upset here, mm-hmm. I want to say I will remember her smile because mm-hmm. it certainly cheered up a room uh, and lit up much of what she tried to accomplish. Uh, so for starters, she had a wonderful smile. But I think I will remember how she listened to me, how she listened to people, how she listened to her friends. She always had a point of view. You always knew where Vivian stood on your life's events and, and on politics and et cetera, and around her kids and my kids. But she always listened. And uh, I think that that is a, a message that all of us need to remember and implement, because I think that is the way forward. Whatever pain we're feeling on both sides, on all sides, we have to accept each other's pain, listen to it, hear it, and join together to eliminate pain and suffering and come forward with peace. That's Vivian. Lynn, again, my condolences, and thank you so much for sharing, uh, sharing a piece of Vivian with us tonight. Thank you very much for your interest and for having me. Wow, 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 wow.
let's go to Toronto now and a guilty verdict that came out in a trial over the weekend, one that we've been watching quite closely, the sexual assault trial of former fashion mogul Peter Nygaard. Uh, a jury found the 82-year-old guilty on four counts of uh, sexual assault. He was acquitted on a fifth, as well as one charge of forcible confinement. The charges stem from allegations, or well, in this case, now from uh, proven facts, I would gather, and for them at least, dating back from the 80s until the mid-2000s. Five women testified during the trial that they were invited to Nygaard's headquarters at 1 Niagara Street in Toronto under all kinds of different pretexts. And all of those encounters, uh, and four of them for which he was found guilty, uh, ended up with them being sexually assaulted. A sentencing date is set for later this month. Uh, Nygaard's defense lawyer said he is considering whether or not to appeal the verdict. Um, a sentence could mean a decade or more behind bars. Uh, we'll find out, I suppose. The Toronto case was just one of several launched against Nygaard uh, for sexual assault and forcible confinement. There are separate cases in Quebec and Manitoba that relate to allegations dating back to the 1990s. He was first arrested in Winnipeg in 2020 under the Extradition Act after he was charged with nine counts in New York, including sex trafficking and racketeering charges. One person who's spoken up for the victims and denounced Nygaard is his son, Kai, who flew in from L.A. for the verdict on Sunday. Here's what he had to say afterwards. The scale of this crime and his actions... When you look at the civil suit, you look at accusers who weren't in the civil suit, former employees who wanted to come forward and don't want anything to do with money, just want to have justice. He has more formal accusations than Epstein, Weinstein, and Cosby combined. I got zero benefit for being a whistleblower. It's not a good brand association to be the son of a monster. For me, it was emotional. But again, I'd like to stress, there are so many survivors out there who this is their day. That's Peter Nygaard's son, Kai, who now goes by Kai Bickle, speaking shortly after uh, guilty verdicts in four of the five uh, sexual assault charges that Peter Nygaard faced in a Toronto courtroom. As I mentioned, there are other cases outstanding, one in Manitoba, another one in Montreal. There are uh, a large amount of charges in New York City. We don't know quite what will happen with those yet as he goes through this process in Ontario. Also in court uh, for the verdict was Shannon Maroney. She's an author, trauma therapist, and she's been a survivor advocate who's been working with dozens of women uh, who are alleged survivors of Peter Nygaard and some of those who uh, testified in their own cases in this latest trial in Toronto. And she joins me now from Toronto. Shannon, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben, for having me. I suppose just your reaction to finally hearing the words, and yours and all those you've been helping, the words guilty at long last. It's surreal. We know he's guilty. I mean, the women I work with were the ones in the room that he assaulted. They know his guilt. I know his guilt from having worked with them through the pain and the suffering that they've endured. But to hear him pronounced officially guilty is extraordinary. I have survivors, you know, we're now on day three since the, the verdict came out and I have survivors still texting me, even the same one, same ones over and over. It's still, it's real, right? Like it, I can't believe it's really happened. I never thought that we would ever really have justice. It's and so, I, so yeah. I, you know, sorry, it, it just okay. really speaks to the, the 50 years that uh, women have been suffering in silence and in the shadows 
uh, or tried to report and nothing ever happened that this is finally happened. And so it's a, it's um, joyful sadness. Yeah, I can imagine. I, it's hard to imagine thinking that someone who's done, taken so much from you will never have to pay. Will never have to pay. Thinking, fundamentally believing justice will never be served here. And then waking up one day and thinking, oh, well, just may, just just maybe, just maybe. Is that the sort of reaction you've been getting from survivors? Again, you've been mentioning just this a, a kind of dis, joy, disbelief, and of course, everything else that comes with the experience long before court comes along. That's right. Yes. So much grief. And the reality is that this happened to them. It can't unhappen. And as one person put it very well, Peter Nygaard lived his life exactly as he pleased until he was 80 years old. And even in jail, we've seen him have privileges that are unheard of. Uh, Cell phone, uh, you know, uh, so much content. He still has apparently enough money to be hiring endless counsel and the best counsel. So for them, you know, for him to now, he he will, I, I'm going to be optimistic that um, public safety will be put first and he'll uh, not be a free man ever again, but he's 82 years old. And so for women who have already lived so much of their life because it happened to them when they were very young, or they have their whole life left to live, it's uh, it's painful. There's no such thing as being served justice. There is such a thing as working toward healing. The scale of this, uh, and I think Canadians are probably, I mean, I don't know how familiar all listeners will be. They may be more familiar with names like Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein and R. Kelly and Bill Cosby. But Peter Nygaard, um, even as his son put it, his son who denounced him put it, I mean, you can take some, a lot of those charges, add them all up, and they're not what Peter Nygaard, I mean, we, in this case, he was convicted of a certain number, four, I believe. But the the, the list of potential victims out there is is absolutely, I mean, it's, I, I want to say mind-blowing, but it's, that's the wrong word because it sounds like it's as if it were impressive, but it's, it's whatever the opposite of that would be. Oh, yes. It, it's heartbreaking and it's mind-breaking. Right. I, I think we can't con- conceptualize of it. But he is, in my belief, and I think the belief of anyone who has heard as much or more as I have, you know, the lawyers, the police, the all, all kinds of people, that he is the absolute most prolific predator and serial rapist and trafficker of our time. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that he can be compared with. So this is really the tip of the iceberg. But I believe that, the, that these convictions here in Toronto will be that uh, you know tip that breaks off and causes an avalanche. That's my that's my hope and that's my belief. Um, but, it, but there's still many uh, battles ahead. But I, I believe that we have turned turned the tide in the war. Not only was he a predator, he also was a predator to those who would come after him. So in some ways, he was he he built up this sort of veneer of invincibility as well, which I think is what you were talking about earlier, that felt like it was going to be so difficult to finally take down. And these, I mean, some of the people who you've been speaking with, the survivors, are people of incredible success and 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 wisdom and means. And I mean, these are not people easily cowed, right? And, and But that's what kind of individual, that's what kind of aura, as bad as it was, as is, that's the kind of aura that Peter Nygaard has had. Certainly. I mean, I, uh, 
he certainly uh, targeted young, poor, but seems to have looked for girls and young women who did not have strong fathers in their lives. And uh, this is kind of all in the predator's playbook. So I think anything that anyone has achieved, any of these survivors have has achieved, whether it's earning a university degree, whether it's running a business, becoming a, a parent, uh, getting married, or it is staying alive. It is getting out of bed most days. All of these are extraordinary achievements for what he did to them. And I only wish that there was more support available to them, such as something as basic as public health funding for therapy, that they would have every resource of it may be made available to them for them to fulfill whatever dreams that they did not get to or those that they might like to take further. Every time I've watched documentaries about this, and you've appeared in many of them, Shannon, I, I wonder, I mean, he, he wasn't, he was hiding in plain sight often. I mean, there was not, people must have known what was going on. And yet he sort of act with, acted with impunity over decades and decades and decades. I, indeed. I don't think that anybody, uh, no matter how much money they had or influence or power or ability to threaten, mm-hmm. would have been able to carry out this structured and planned pyramid trafficking and serial rape scheme without help. I have one uh, survivor, um, Serena Hicks in in mm-hmm. Winnipeg, and she has publicly stated that uh, she believes, and she is to be believed, that there are too many people, especially in Winnipeg, still sort of alive and well that have blood on their hands about this. So we have together, along with another survivor, Casey Allen, who's just been an, a staunch advocate for her survivor sisters, uh, we have called for, and we've been calling for, and not have having really been heard until maybe now, a uh, public inquiry into the entire system of justice in Manitoba from the beginning stages of police reporting all the way up to crown decisions on right. whether or not to prosecute. Even in your experience, I think what started off as a few then ballooned to many, many, many who came to you for advice, right? Not knowing where to turn and needing someone to talk to. And you became that ear for many people, for many more perhaps than you'd even expected at the beginning. Oh, gosh, I had no expectations at the beginning. I mean, I was contacted by a not-for-profit organization in the Bahamas, uh, and by email, they just reached out to me um, through Psychology Today because I have expertise in trafficking and sexual assault recovery and trauma. They have a therapy abroad program and that there were two women from Toronto who'd been assaulted and they were going to pay for their therapy back in Toronto. And uh, in my mind, I pictured, I just pictured two young women who had recently been on vacation, maybe two friends from the university or something, and something terrible had happened and they were going to be back here in Toronto. Once I actually made contact with them for the first time, it was clear they were from completely, neither one of them was from Toronto, in fact. And it was only when I called and spoke to the first one who ended up being one of the uh, women who testified in Toronto. She was absolutely terrified and very mistrustful. Who are you? How do I know you are? Who you say you are? She said, how do I know you're not a spy for Peter Nygaard? And I, I just thought, Peter Nygaard? 
and I thought about my mom, who's a retired teacher, and she in their Retired Women Teachers Association, they do fashion shows every few years, and they are were often to go to an iGuard store and choose the fashions. So I'm just thinking the designer of these clothes for older women. And this woman on the phone is just, um, she's palpably terrified. And she wants to trust, but she can't. So I, of course, I'm saying, here, here's who I am. Look me up. I'm, I'm already a public person. You know, what you ask me, anything you want to ask me, I'm not going to ask anything of you. And in the background, I'm Googling Peter Nygaard. And that's where I saw that he had been, uh, his offices in New York had been raided by the FBI, that there was a civil class action lawsuit. And then sure enough, when I called the second person, now I'm thinking she must be a survivor as well. So, I mean, going into this, it was like, I knew absolutely nothing. I'm just glad I had the space in my therapy practice to be able to take these women. I was kind of part-time therapy before the pandemic. And I did a lot of traveling and speaking with my books and and educating and so forth. And then the pandemic ended all my travel, which is what gave me the space to be able to take at first a few and then um, dozens of women into my care. And it's been a privilege. I'm honored to know them and to have had the opportunity to support them and, and to help them, those of them who wanted to or felt that they were able to begin that process of police reporting in whatever jurisdiction I could make contact with a, a, a trauma-informed police officer. Being as close as you are to this, what should we walk away with then from, from the verdict over the weekend? Because I think a lot of people will be tempted to say, well, that's that. That's that. He's guilty and he'll no doubt spend some time in jail. And uh, But listening to you and watching survivors speak about this again, it, it feels like this story is is far from over. You're right. It's far from over. I think of it like D-Day. Maybe this is a good visual visual for folks. I believe that we had this was a huge, huge battle one to win uh, convictions on historic sexual assault is almost unheard of. And this is precedent setting. And we need to continue to set that precedent by going forward, forward, forward until we get all the way through the battles and to the end of the war on this. And at the same time, we need to be working to change laws that can help people to be able to come forward and, and actually be able to have charges. Like, I, you know, the jurisdictional issues here that we face alone are, are quite complicated. Basically, if you're a wealthy predator, now they all know to uh, get yourself by yourself safe haven in a developing country. And because you can only report a crime where it happened, uh, with rare exception, we have so many survivors that what is the reality if they were trafficked from Canada uh, or the United States or anywhere else to the Bahamas and assaulted there? What is the reality that they're going to report to the Bahamian police? especially when there were so many Bahamian police officers were seen in such close proximity to Peter Nygaard himself. So those are the optics to them. And that would, of course, present great barriers to reporting. And so I think we need to be looking at if you're, for example, just to speak of, of uh, Canadians, if you're a Canadian and you're transported or invited to an another country by a Canadian and then assaulted by that Canadian, really shouldn't you be able to report that here? And I feel if you are a Bahamian, especially a poor or underprivileged Bahamian girl who is assaulted by a Canadian, 
who has taken up residency and in your safe haven country, shouldn't you be able to report in Canada? These are the questions I ask and that I hope that, that can really come forward because these um, predators like Peter Nygaard are, what they do on a permanent basis is look for loopholes and they find them. And that's what we need to be able to stop as well as we continue to educate about the dignity, rights, and and value of girls and women, which we should be far past having to educate anybody about. Shannon, thank you so much. Thank you. When I first moved to Victoria back in 2015 uh, to work in the news, there are always crimes and that you hadn't heard about that maybe you didn't know that while I'd been living abroad for quite a while. And it wasn't long before arriving here that I'd heard the name Lindsay Buziak and the unsolved murder that had happened at that point already seven years earlier, but just how much um, that crime, uh, her life, how much that had touched so many on southern Vancouver Island and, and elsewhere right across the province. To this day, here we are now 15 years later, it's 2023, and we still don't, it still remains unsolved to this day. Um, Lindsay was a 24-year-old real estate agent just starting off in what looked like a really promising career when she was murdered in a home that she was showing uh, that had been arranged, a whole sort of viewing that had been arranged arranged very quickly on the phone. Um, And two years after the murder, in fact, there was a Crime Stoppers report that was put out. And I watched it again only because to listen to it now, it feels like so many of the questions in it are still unanswered. Have a listen. On Saturday, February 2nd, 2008, 24-year-old Victoria realtor Lindsay Buziak had made arrangements to show the house located at 1702 D'Souza Place in Saanich. Buziak had received a cold call from a female with an accent regarding purchase of this million-dollar property. Buziak did not know the prospective buyers and had a sense of uneasiness. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., the prospective buyers arrived at the home and met with Lindsay in the driveway. The male was described as a Caucasian and tall, and the female as Caucasian in the 30s with blonde hair, wearing a red, black, and white patterned dress. Lindsay Buziak was murdered in the upstairs bedroom. If you or anybody you know has information concerning the murder of Lindsay Buziak, please call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Right, we've seen those Crime Stoppers right over the years, and you know there were thousands of leads, hundreds of interviews done, and still to this day we don't know who that couple is, is at least not publicly. Uh, police do believe she was lured to that address in what was a planned murder. Her wallet, purse, and cell phone were not taken. Um, here's now retired Saanich Staff Sergeant Saanich Police. That's the community in which this took place, just north of Victoria. Uh, Chris Horsley speaking about five years ago now. So we're quite confident there are people out there with first-hand and direct knowledge of this event. We need to drill down and get to those people, and we're hopeful this can be resolved. Again, I think that was five years ago at this point. Uh, For the past 15 years, her father, Jeff, has continued to fight for justice, trying to keep the memory of his daughter very much alive and the case front and center. Uh, That's included annual walks in Victoria to keep the case in people's minds. Lindsay's story has been featured on major U.S. crime shows such as Dateline. Jeff even appeared on Dr. Phil a few years back uh, to talk about his quest to find those responsible for his daughter's death. Uh, Buziak, who now lives in Calgary, is still searching for those answers, and he joins me now. Jeff, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, Ben. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I think this is a very important topic, and one that uh, everybody should hear and everybody should know about. It uh, really comes down to this is about a young woman murdered at work. That's what this is yeah. all about. And it's about people getting away with that. Not only the couple that were there, 
but also the conspirators. There are people behind this murder that planned it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the reason uh, Staff Sergeant Retired Horsley said mm. there are people out there locally, it's because it's a local thing. It is local. Uh, it's right. someone very close to Lindsay that uh, did this. So, you know, on we go. We search. I do not give up. Um, I will no. stay with this. Tell me a bit about Lindsay, because, of course, to me, I'm moving here after the, afterwards. She's always just been that incredible photo that we see of her so often. And, and those stories about, you know, getting into real estate and how how great she was at it and how promising life looked um, for her. Yeah, Lindsay was just an incredible young woman, um, you know, beginning her really her serious adult life. She found her career. She found what she really wanted to do uh, in her life. And uh, so. You know, she was um, extremely well-liked by everyone. She was a great friend. She loved her friends. She had many, many, many friends and stayed very close to them. I was just really blessed with uh, kids with great personalities. And Lindsay certainly had that. You know, there's just the perfect combination of her mom and dad. And uh, it took her to a place that made her happy uh, in real estate where it was just natural for her. You know, I say now I've been in the business for 40 years. It's like breathing for me. Uh, but that took 40 years for her. It didn't take very long and real estate was like breathing for her, but uh, tremendous personality, uh, very positive, uplifting, uh, just a really, really exciting young lady. And, um, you know, I think uh, that reflected in her success in real estate for the short time she was doing it. And with her close friendships, uh, they stayed very, very close. Yeah. I mean, I've always reminded each year when you have those walks, how many people cared for her because it's harder than it looks to get a bunch of people out every year, year after year to do that. It really is, Ben. You know, it's a challenge and it's uh, something that I really don't like doing. I just dread Mm -hmm. it. And already that started in me. Um, But I have to, you know, it's my duty and um, so people show up, though, you know, it surprises you uh, who shows up. Last year, a wonderful couple, you know, elderly were there. And I was thinking, you know, who, who are these people? And I don't like to query too much because I'm very grateful for the people that do show up. And it was one of Lindsay's teachers, um, right. you know, that came and just said, Jeff, this needs to be solved. Like, what's going on? And I just said, you know, really, I don't know what's going on here. But, uh, yes, I agree with you. You know, people think, gee, hurry up and get this solved and put this poor old man out of his misery. This isn't really the case for me, Ben. The situation now is, um, you know, I'm doing what's right, I feel. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing my duty to see that justice is served. This is uh, not specifically for Lindsay. Ben, I've accepted. My daughter's dead. She's gone. She's not going to return. Um, It's painful, and it uh, continues to this day. So with a background in my degree from the University of Victoria in psychology, I mean, I I understand clearly you cannot let people get away with this. Already, it's established that, hey, you know, we can go murder them. You can get away with it because justice doesn't act swiftly, especially in British Columbia. So 
my thing now is really yes for Lindsay, but man, for your sister, for your partner, for your niece. Um, that's what I'm doing this for now. We got killers out in the community. Like what the heck? You can't have that. You can't have people get away with murder uh, forever. And, uh, you know, you get these statements from police. Well, you know, sometimes these things take 20, 30 years. That's because of incompetence. It doesn't take that long to do any job in this world. You know, Ben, when I was on the Dr. Phil show, Dr. Phil tried to talk to me about, well, these things take time. I just watched the movie Apollo 13 and I went, Dr. Phil. President Kennedy announced he was going to put a man on the moon. And he did that within eight years. They had to travel for, I think it was five days, at 25,000 miles an hour. They had to part from the capsule in outer space, one leaving one individual behind and two men going forward, traveling for another couple days at 25,000 miles an hour, landed on the moon walked around, jumped around, planted a flag, got some rocks, got back in their spaceship 25,000 miles an hour for two days, perfectly reconnected with the mothership. Another three days, 25,000 miles an hour, pinpoint landing in the ocean. You know, and they tell me it takes 30 years to solve a murder? Bull crap. No. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. Don't tell me that. So listeners don't, Nothing in this you world. Made a, yeah, you made a vow, too, to her, didn't you? I mean, you made a vow that, that you talk about regularly. I've heard you talk about it before. You made a vow to Lindsay when you saw her, when you were at the morgue and said, I'm not giving up. That's correct. And, and I won't. And, you know, that doesn't haunt me. That drives me. I held my precious daughter dead in the morgue. And I had to fight to do that with Sandwich Police. We were hollering at each other. They weren't going to allow me to do that. Right in the morgue, I, I was threatening them. And then I end up behind a glass window to see her. I just, it wasn't acceptable for me. And so finally we get into the room. You know, I cried, sobbed, cried out. And I said at that time, we're going to find out who did this to you, and they're going to be exposed in the media, and they're going to be arrested and charged, and I will not stop un until that is done or I die. Um, Jeff, on that day, I mean, I, I've obviously looked back and you know read about it and seen the documentaries over the years and so on. That she had a suspicion that something wasn't quite right, and she talked to you about her concerns about that couple and that particular uh, request that she had received uh, by a phone call to her personal phone from someone that she didn't know. Ben, she was very concerned about it. She said, uh, "Daddy, there's something wrong with this. I don't know what it is." And I said, well, you know, you've got some options here. Don't go or make sure somebody's there with you. And she assured me that uh, her boyfriend or common-law partner, Jason Thalo, would be there with her. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't. No. He wasn't. He, and, uh, he, arrived, so he arrives she, later, I know, yeah. Yeah. 
So she expressed that to many people, and other people volunteered to go over there with her. She talked to people in her office, and uh, she was like, no, no, somebody's going to be there. Jason will be there. So, yeah, she was very concerned. It just something was bothering her about it, uh, which, of course, really haunts me to this day, that uh, her boss, her boyfriend, would allow her to go there on her own. Uh, I just think that's horrendous. I had, you know, Ben, it's interesting. I had a call. I had a call last week from a woman realtor here in Calgary that I had met before. Don't know her really well. Uh, She phoned me or texted me and said, Jeff, what are you doing at two today? Can you go on an appointment with me? I'm concerned. I'm shocked to see this text come on my phone. I responded right away. Absolutely. And so I ended up going on the appointment with her. There was not a problem. Um, you know, we did meet in a location that was vacant with two men. Um, and uh, this was a female. And so, you know, everything went fine. I didn't suspect anything was going on untoward there. But that's interesting that, you know, females have a very, very, very good intuition, probably better than men. We're just you know, going forward most of the time. But uh, that was interesting to get that call. You know, I didn't question it. I didn't uh, say, well, you know, what's wrong with your husband? Or don't you have somebody from work? No questions. Absolutely, I'll be there. So I rearranged my schedule, went with her. So with Lindsay, yeah, she had that same feeling. And uh, unfortunately, nobody was there. Yeah, and and they've never been able to figure out who the couple were. Or at least well, not, not publicly. They'll tell us. Yeah, they won't right. tell us anything. So you know, there's been much speculation over the years about who the couple was or could be, and uh, you know, it's a pretty long list. But uh, no, we don't know. I uh, have talked to one of the witnesses by chance. I met them on the street one day, and um, it's really difficult because you know it's a fleeting moment. You're not expecting to think oh gee there's going to be a murder so i gotta i have to really pay attention to every little detail um yeah it's it's a tough one it's a tough one right we know the phone i gather the phone that was used to make that phone call to her personal number too right not to her work number to her personal number was a phone that was only used that one time purchased, I gather, in Vancouver and then disposed of. Uh, I guess years later we found out that there had been another call to check the messages on that phone from another, from another number. But that, too, was a dead end, and there seemed to have been no forensic evidence in the house either. So, it, 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 I mean, at least not that you know of, right? I mean, who knows what we don't know or aren't being told. Uh, but it seems there was, there was a lot of dead ends uh, trying to locate who these two people were. Yeah, there certainly has been. Now, People have to understand the police don't always tell us the truth. And I'm not saying that to beat up the police. But I learned a very, very good lesson about that reasonably early on in this unsolved murder where I knew police were telling me stuff that wasn't true and I was questioning some of it and trying to catch them. Finally, I caught them one day. And I was like, okay, you know, sort of like, I've caught you, you're lying. and, And, you know, the officer... Who's a really good guy. He kind of giggled and he says, he used some swear words, which I won't use on the radio, but he was like, Jeff, do you think we catch bad guys by telling the truth all the time? 
come, he was like, come on, give your head a shake. Like that was a big lesson for me because as a member of the public, you think, okay, the police are the police. They tell the truth. They uphold the law. You know, they're straight, da, 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 high respect, all that kind of stuff. Well, hey, they have to use techniques too. They have to put out false information. They have to do certain things to aid them in solving a crime. So when we think, hey, they don't have any DNA, they have DNA. When we think, you know, gee, the, they said the phone only did this. Nah, you know, they're telling us whatever they want to tell us. They want people to hear things for a certain reason. So, you know, people point. have to be careful. I noticed lately uh, somebody's going around trying to say, Jeff said this, that's a lie. This has taken a toll on you mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, You've lost your job. You've lost really everything, right? House, cars. I mean, you've given up everything in pursuit of this because this is your number one priority and nothing gets in the way of it, correct? That's correct, Dr. Phil. I pursue this daily, and uh, I always say when people ask me, you know, what does that mean to you? I say, all in. I'm all in. Jeff Buziak on the Dr. Phil show not that many years ago, uh, talking about uh, the investigation, the, the, his continued quest to find justice for his daughter, Lindsay Buziak, who was murdered back in 2008 on February the 2nd. Uh, she was a 24-year-old living in Victoria. Um, she was showing a home to a couple that she didn't know, and uh, she was attacked and killed, we believe. And to this day, the police have not ever named a suspect or made any arrests. In fact, um, there have been, uh, Jeff, over the years, I mean, there have been so many theories sometimes, it's hard to sort of separate what's real and what isn't. Um, but there was a new task force, I gather, set up a little while ago. Do you still get regular updates from the police? And what are they looking at? It's been, you mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, they put a man on the moon uh, in, in less time, in much less time than it's taken for this investigation to unfold. Is there anything new that you've been told? Do you still talk to them? I do. Uh, you know, yeah. I've raised a lot of cane over the years with the police force, and mm -hmm. uh, I still hold them accountable. So Dr. Phil might think I'm mean to them. No, I'm holding them accountable. They have a job to do, and uh, they need to do their job, which they're not doing right now. Ben, you know, it's interesting. We've had four mayors and five police chiefs since Lindsay's murder. Not only that, four premiers of British Columbia, eight attorney generals, six ministers of public and safety and solicitor generals, all failures. They've all failed to protect the citizens. They failed to protect Lindsay. They failed to see that justice is served for murder, the most heinous crime against mankind, the most heinous crime since the beginning of time. So I like to hold these people accountable, and they need to be held accountable. That is a, a horrendous record to have all these people sit in different offices and not have any success. They're supposed to be there for the people, supposed to be protecting the people. They're not. They're not. It's a joke. So I hold them accountable. And uh, yes, it's taken its toll, but it doesn't matter for me anymore. It doesn't matter. Life, uh, what's life about for me? You know, I'm a single man. Um, is it there to just pursue and satisfy my own personal desires? Then that's kind of a waste of time. And lots of people like to do that. I have fun um, when I can. 
and uh, life since murder has been about rebuilding and trying to recuperate. That's what it's been about, and trying to see justice is served. I feel now, I'm a senior citizen now, and I consider myself an elder, and I think that it's my duty because the country, my country that I love, has failed me, has failed Lindsay. So I need to stand up as an elder, as a senior, as a citizen of this country, and hold these people accountable and not let them try and belittle, berate, or do anything else to me, which they've tried all the different methods over the years. They want people to think you're crazy. That, oh, you know, he just needs to go away, let us do our job. No, you're not doing your job. Do you know there was a world war from 39 to 45, which we just celebrated uh, for the veterans? That, mm-hmm. Can you imagine, like, hundreds, millions and millions of people dead, like, dying, sacrificing their lives for their countries? What's the country done for me, for Lindsay? Nothing so far. Um, you know, and they you, fall for that you, war what, in Jeff, six years. What do you... What do you think it is? What, what's happened here, do, do you think? Because I'm sure there's, I've read all, I mean, there's speculation beyond speculation. But fundamentally, I mean, you've followed this case so closely for so long. And, I, you know, I, I'm familiar with Saanich police. I mean, it's not, it's not, they're not the FBI. But, you know, I, I don't imagine that there was anyone who is ill-intentioned here. Uh, they just, are they, do, are they one clue away? Are they, are they far off, do you think? Do you? I've always been curious to know what you thought about about just how cold a case it's become. Because they always say they're still working on it. There was a new task force, I think, that came out, was announced a couple of years ago. Uh, and yet still nothing, still no new progress, at least not nothing public. Yeah, remember what I said earlier. Don't believe what they tell us because they use all kinds of techniques. They tell me, oh, we're positive, we're doing this. I've heard that for 16 years. It doesn't take that long to do a job. What are they doing? Nothing. For the most part, they fiddle around. They're going off some manual that was invented in the 30s or something. Um, And they keep telling me, oh, we need a confession. Oh, we need some DNA. Go get it. That is your job. Your job is to get what you need, not wait for it. Ben, what they're doing is they do what they call front-loading. So they put a bunch of effort and spend some money on it at the beginning. If there's no result, they wait for it to solve itself. So... How do I see it after all these years? It's cover up, screw up, and just don't care. They just they want to put in their time. Can you imagine doing a poor job and getting a promotion and a pay raise? Can you imagine not succeeding in your career and getting promoted and retired with a very nice pension? That's how it works at Sandwich Police. They you must want to, to solve succeed. this crime, Jeff. Though, don't you think? I mean, I, again, I've, I've I've listened to you talk for the years, and I I I, I know exactly where you're coming from. The frustration is 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 obvious mm-hmm. to anyone who listens to you. But they must want to. I mean, everyone must want this one has been hanging over them for 15 years. Uh, you know that image of your daughter appears again and again and again as a reminder to them that this isn't done, that this isn't solved, and it must be. You would think that for them too, it would be something that they would want to. I mean, I realize that, that, that you and the police have, and that force have had, you know, you've had your, you've butted heads over the years, but the, you, you would think they would want to solve this. I, that's always been my impression of, of any police force wouldn't want this sort of unsolved crime to be hanging over them. 
Yeah, it's easy. The Vancouver Canucks want to win the Stanley Cup. So do the Edmonton Oilers now and the Calgary Flames and the Toronto Maple Leafs and whoever else. True. Who wins it? The ones that work the hardest, put together the best team, get a boss that holds them accountable. That's who wins the Stanley Cup. That's who gets the gold medal in the Olympics. Dedicated, hardworking people. That's who wins. That's happening. No, no. We've had like six heads of the file. Failures. Every one of them. Every one of them failed. Horsley, who you talked about, he'll admit. Mm -hmm. Didn't make it happen. Didn't succeed. You know, they failed. That's what I hold them accountable for, and they don't like that. They put on a uniform or get a badge and somehow nowadays it's transformed to some kind of demigod that you can't criticize, or they will come down on you. And they did with me. Two of them came to Calgary unannounced. Stop what you're doing. Shut down that website, or we will destroy you. That, yeah. that was my mandate. <laughs> Jeff, I mean, I think anyone, no one can know what it's like to live through what you've lived through. No one who's never lost a daughter the way you lost a daughter will ever understand. Uh, and, and yet, I, 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 do you, if you could go back in time, would you try to have a different relationship with, with, with the police at all? Or would you, I don't know, it just, I, I just wish they would solve this for you. I wish this was solved, obviously. I mean, at some point, at some point, you, you, you're gonna, you'll probably, you're never going to give up trying. But at some point, the hope must start to fade a little bit. No. No, it doesn't. Never. Not at all. Never. Never will. Um, I don't always have a bad relationship with them. It's been up and down. Um, They came to Calgary here, what was it, two years ago, a year ago, to interview me. And that was a bit of a con game that I caught them at. Nonetheless, I let it go. We had a good discussion. There were members of Saanich Police there. And part of the deal after I caught them at their games was, I want to talk to you guys after. We had a very good discussion. It was positive. It was motivational. It was good. And I'll sit down and talk to any Saanich Police member about that. Um, I don't hate Saanich Police. I don't dislike them. But it's a proven fact. They're not doing their job. It's proven. Proven. They don't, haven't solved the murder. So, um, would I like to have a better relationship with them? No. Do your goddamn job. That's yeah. the deal. Do they want me to praise them for doing a poor job? That's what they're used to. Do you know how many members go through that uh, detective division and get promotions? For what? Like doing a poor job? So we'll promote you and give you a pay raise? Like, it's insanity, Ben. Total insanity. I've even had a member of Sandwich Police tell me when I tried to hold him accountable and said, just go do what you need to do. Well, you can't, you know, there's union, and, you know, if the other members will get mad if you're making them look bad. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, so do you come think they're on. close, Jeff? Do you, th- do, you think, do you think they are one word away one confession what confession one phone call away from sealing this is is that always been your sneaking suspicion that this one is that they know they have a pretty clear idea of what happened and just have never been able to prove it 
I believe they know everything. And yes, they're held to a very high standard that they need 150% proof that it's who it is. They know. They know, and they protect that. And that's what drives you crazy, too, is they're protecting the criminals. Do they protect me? No. My automobile has been tampered with. I had a shop call me one day and say, someone's trying to kill you, buddy. Well, You know, I have people tagging me. Do I get protection? No. When I ask them who's involved in my murder, oh, we can't tell you that. They told me once that there was a hit on me. I said, well, who is it? it. Oh, we can't tell you. Yes. Yes, they called me in. It's called duty to inform. They brought me in and said, as a result of our investigation, we found out that your life's in danger. So I said, what do you mean? There's a hit? Yeah. Well, who is it? Well, we can't tell you. It's like they protect the criminals. There's no protection for me. Jeff, where, where do you think... Again, there was a new task force put in place, I gather, a few years ago. I mean, when one looks at what could happen now, it feels like there are only a few things, there are only a few breakthroughs that could happen. Either somebody says something, someone who knows says something, or if not, what 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 would you hope for in the next few years as this continues? Because I gather the investigation continues, but it feels like you don't know much more than you did five years ago, nor does anyone else. Well, then, what I see going on in the future is, with the advancement in uh, DNA technology, I think we'll bring us an answer. Um, And I think Savage Police, even though they've said we don't have anything, they have stuff. And uh, it's just a matter of when do you use it. Maybe it's limited. I don't know. Um, You can't use it all at once, or then you have nothing. They have stuff. So I know when I was at Dr. Phil, um, I met with uh, C.C. Moore, who's, you know, one of the groundbreakers in the DNA genealogy technology, and she volunteered to work on it. And uh, so she was in contact with Saanich Police. But as soon as anybody contacts Saanich Police, of course, I'm cut out of the loop, so I don't get to know what's going on after that, whether they still work with them or not. Um, Really hard work with some of my volunteers, we got the FBI involved, and uh, they still are to this day, by the way, not actively working on the investigation, but they consult with the police force. Um, and so I just, you know, I've had a tremendous amount of support from volunteers. We also, uh, you know, had enough uh, pressure put on the government that a, uh, a team leader was assigned from a major crime unit to oversee it. Uh, we asked for them to fire Saanich police, but they wouldn't do that. But they did uh, put a team leader overseer who I talked to monthly uh, for updates. Uh, you know, it's really good for me to have that contact. It's very important to have that contact for me because that's all I have. Um, so I see, you know, the advancement DNA is going to come home for us and someone will talk. There's no doubt about that. Someone will talk. But, uh, you know, it's a waiting game and it's a frustrating waiting game. And, of course, the whole talk thing, when I hear that from police, I just say, you know, don't wait. Like, go get what you need. They know who they need to talk to. But, you know, in in all <laughs> due respect to the police, they do have to follow certain procedures. Um, and so, you know, they have to be careful what they do so they don't jeopardize the case.
uh, everybody ascribes to. And then, you know, there's all kinds of different ones. I keep my mind very open all the time. You know, I have a gut feeling of what I think went on, but uh, I'm not locked in on that. I talk to people daily about murder. Murder is part of every day for me. And so, you know, I make sure I keep an open mind when people talk to me about things. You know, what about this? What about that? I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, but uh, I think police are locked in on a theory. And the crazy thing is, you know, Ben, this takes so long. You question, like, when when are you supposed to? Or when do you just say, screw it, justice must be served? Like, when do you well, do that? Or do you? You know, that's a question you, you, I'm posed with a lot. It's just like, okay. Yeah, people must ask you that all the time, Jeff. I mean, they must ask you that all the time. I mean, it's between, well, ben, yes, I'm, I mean. Yeah. I'm told all the time, yeah, if it was, if it was me, boy, there'd yeah. be heads rolling. Yeah, I hear that all the that's time. Easy to, that's easy to say, though, isn't it? That's easy to exactly. say. I mean, I can't imagine how much you've had to listen to. Forget, I mean, I've also obviously listened to you a lot over the last, over the while. I can't imagine how much you've had to listen to over the years, people giving you advice and telling you what you should be and shouldn't be doing. I guess before we go, I really wanted just to talk about, I was noticing before, as we were arranging to talk with you, I was noticing it would have been Lindsay's 40th birthday uh, earlier this yes. month. And I thought, November wow, second. you know. November 2nd, uh, 1983, she was born, so 40 years. And I just thought, wow, you know, those pictures are sort of frozen in time. But I often think about what would have become of her, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know what? We don't know. We can just speculate. But certainly, you know, she was, at the time of her murder, she had her career sorted out. She just didn't have her personal life sorted out as far as partner, who she wanted to settle with. That wasn't sorted out. We all know that. We've heard all the stories. And so, you know, I'm sure by this point she would have been settled. Whether she had family or not, who knows? Um, her sister doesn't. Um, and it looks like I'm not going to be a grandpa. But uh, that's okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, we don't know, but I'm sure she would have been a fine. Like, she was maturing so rapidly, it was unbelievable then. I sometimes, you know, with my interaction with her, I'd sit back after and go, holy crap, she's more mature than I am in certain areas. It was just, she was an amazing individual. So I can see that, you know, things would have been very good for her by this point. Without well, a doubt. Jeff, I... I appreciate your time tonight. Of course, I always think of, of, of Lindsay when you have, have those walks every year. And I think we all just hope, especially here where it happened, we all just hope one day there will be justice as you fought for. Thank you again. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on your show, Ben. I really appreciate that. Hi, I'm Jill Biden, and I'm here with my good friend, Gabrielle. Hi, we're here to tell you the word of the day. Today's word is kindness. It means doing something to show you care about people, animals, or the environment. There's lots of ways you can show kindness. That, of course, is Jill Biden, the First Lady, and Gabrielle. She was, needless to say, on Sesame Street. If you listen to the show, you know that I'm a Sesame Street fan, or at least was as a youngster. Uh, I was actually even on Sesame Street, believe it or not, not on the physical street itself. But they used to have those little vignettes that they would make that would show kids doing stuff. And I was in one where I had to make bagels. 
I went to the Fairmount St. Vieter Bagel Factory and made bagels for this thing. Uh, and it aired for absolutely ever. I had cousins who were 10, 12, 13 years younger than I was who would see it on Sesame Street years and years later. So that was my, that was my first foray into anything that anything resembling broadcasting. That was, that was a long time ago. Uh, but again, that was Jill Biden with Gabrielle, more than a half century now. Sesame Street's been breaking ground in educational TV, both in front of the camera and behind the scenes. Gabrielle is a case in point. The woman behind her is the first black woman to be a core puppeteer on the show. Uh, Megan Pyfus Peace got her start as a kid growing up in Cincinnati. She became a ventriloquist, believe it or not. I've always been mystified by how that works, by how ventriloquism works. And she even appeared on shows such as America's Got Talent a decade ago. Uh, she went on to study economics on scholarship, no less, at Vanderbilt University before getting a job in commercial real estate. But the dreams of working with puppets, of doing that, never faded. So after some tenacity and some encouragement, she wound up with an interview uh, with the heads of Sesame Street a little while ago. And that led to time in the so-called Puppeteer Academy. You actually have to learn how to do what they do on Sesame Street. It's a big uh, – you have to adapt to it. And last year, a big break. She got invited to be a core puppeteer with Gabrielle, who's six and three quarters years old. It's a story about puppets and kids and Sesame Street, but really, really, it's a story about following your dreams. And Megan, a puppeteer and performer on Sesame Street, joins me now. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is a, what, what a what a what a big. We should probably go back to the beginning because I think the thing that people always wonder is, well, how does one become a professional master puppeteer, so to speak? And I guess you were started pretty young back at church, right? So it started as a fun activity that I was doing with my friends um, when I was 10 years old. There was a lady at my church who was starting a puppet team that could perform for the children's church. And so she got a group of us us together, about 20 preteens and a 10-year-old like myself. And she found a conference for us to go to where we could all learn how to do puppetry and how to perform as a team. And so I went to this conference and in the evenings there were performances by female ventriloquists. And I didn't realize I was rare at the time. And I was inspired by these women who would storytell and sing songs with their characters. And so at the end of the conference, our instructor, she said, okay, this was really fun. I think we're going to come back next year. What kind of classes do you want to sign up for? And I said, I think I kind of want to try the ventriloquism classes. And she said, are you sure you can do that? And I said, I don't know. So I went home and I told my mom and she found videos from the library on puppetry and ventriloquism. I found a puppet at the local toy store and I just practiced over and over. And within a couple of weeks, I was um, performing for my classmates at school and cracking jokes with them. My teachers caught on and asked me to perform in front of the school. And I wrote a whole script about love. And that was my very first performance. And I was addicted to making children smile and laughed with characters. And I never stopped performing. Um, I didn't know it would turn into a professional career. But in 2020, I got a message from Sesame Street from Matt Bogle, who plays Big Bird, and Marty Robinson, plays Snuffleupagus and Tully. Um, that they had gotten my letter wow. to the Robinson <laughs> company years back. Um, but because production had stopped down because of the pandemic. They had time to read through old submissions and they wonder if I'd be interested in Sesame Street and it's history from there. You're the first black woman to be a puppeteer on the show. Now, of course, growing up as a little white kid in Montreal, uh, to me, Sesame Street opened whole new worlds. Like I saw people that I'd never, that I'd never seen before in my lifetime. And to me, it was a really incredible experience watching Sesame Street growing up. Was it similar for you? 
I grew up watching Sesame Street. Uh, Sesame Street was my early childhood education. I stayed with a caregiver until I started formal school and kindergarten. And so they were my first exposure to education and also my first exposure to puppetry. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I was watching puppetry. I was just watching my furry and colorful friends. But now that I'm working for Sesame Street, it is such a blessing to be able to do a character that I would have related to as a child. Yeah, I guess part that's part of it, too. You become this, you must realize, because you were a big fan as a kid yourself, the power that you have, too, because kids are very impressionable, but they watch these puppets with, I mean, I remember Sesame Street skits from 45 years ago, right? It's, it's remarkable what stays with you for all those years, and now you have one of those puppets as well. Yeah, I'll never forget there was an episode about table manners. And I've been doing doing puppetry that you can teach a child anything at at any level. Um, But when a puppet explains it, you reach another level of their imagination and they retain information another way. So I remember as a two-year-old watching an episode with Baby Bear and table manners and they were passing things under the table and throwing things. And they said, no, we pass. We pass around one by one. We don't reach across the table. Table. And it's just very simple um, concepts that that we retain when it's done through puppetry. Yeah. For me, it was always Bert and Ernie and the and the pizza and the grape juice and how it was right. sort of teaching you math. Right. And Ernie kept taking everything. Right? It kept getting smaller and smaller. This was I mean, so people understand. There is a the reason why Sesame Street has been so successful for more than half a century now is you do have to learn. I mean, you came in with a ton of talent, but you had to learn a new way of doing things. Yeah, I had to relearn uh, puppetry the way I was, uh, my technique wasn't ergonomically friendly. So they retaught me how to hold my hand, how to hold my shoulders, my arms. I relearned how to do lip sync. And there's a very uh, masterful technique that says that's iconic for Sesame Street and is what allows the characters to connect so deeply to the children on the other side of the screen. Well, yeah, what is that? Because it is you, you almost it's almost so good. You never notice it until you until I was watching you talk about having to relearn the lip sync part of it or the synchronizing part of it. I hadn't even realized how absolutely perfect Sesame Street is in that in that field so that you believe you're watching a puppet speak. Yeah, there's very limited distractions in the quality of the puppetry. You know, when you watch Elmo or Gabrielle or, or Abigadabi and they look directly into the camera lens, directly down the barrel of the lens, there's a special connection that you achieve with the with the viewer. And that takes practice to nail the puppet's eye focus being directly down the barrel of the lens. Yeah. And I should mention to listeners, Gabrielle's your 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 character, right? She's six and three quarters years old. Is that uh, it must be it must be such an amazing canvas for you to be able to. And you have two young boys, right? It must be such an amazing canvas for you to be able to paint on as as a performer, as as a mom, as a whole bunch of things. Gabrielle is such an amazing canvas. I'm able to reach in and find the little girl that I was and speak to what she needed and speak to the level of confidence that I wanted her to have, the aspirations that I wanted her to have, and also mold the next generation and seeing themselves and Gabrielle, seeing her uh, sense of self-belonging, her love of community, her confidence. 
Megan Pifus Peace is with us. She's a puppeteer and performer on Sesame Street. Her character is called Gabrielle. If you listen to the show, you'll know how much I grew up loving Sesame Street as a kid. I was actually in a skit on Sesame Street when I was young. A friend of my parents was a filmmaker and, and like a lot of things on Sesame Street, I don't remember if you remember this, Megan, you could see the same skits for years on end. The puppets would change, right? But the same skits would stay there for, for years on end, the pre-filmed ones. Um, you have a lot of other stuff going on as well. I mean, this has been, a full-time thing for you as well. Plus you're, you're still thinking about it. You have a kid's album, I think coming out and you're still doing your own ventriloquism and other forums as well. That's right. I just released a children's music album produced with legendary bassist and rock and roll hall of famer, Bootsy Collins. Oh, awesome. And yeah, Grammy award winning producer. Yeah. So we released that album spaceships and dreams this past September. And it was so much fun finding the sound for the album. It's children's music. That doesn't really sound like children's music. We have children's themes, but it's music that the whole family can enjoy together. And it has kind of a jazz hip hop feel to it. And there's some songs that lean towards the funk genre, of course, considering the producers that we have involved in the project, but it's streaming on all platforms. And we're in plans right now to take, Take the show on the road to perform it live, um, but also put together a visual series that supports music education in combination with the album. Wow. You must sometimes you must pinch yourself. I mean, just because I, I know you had the dreams of doing this, but like like so many people, you get a lot of no's along the way. I mean, you were on America's Got Talent. You're, it was great, but it means you can't, there's only a few people that make it to the very end. You faced down a few barriers that you could have simply walked away from, I think, because you had another career that you probably would have been would have been highly successful. But instead, you decided, I'm going to stick this out. Yeah, I decided to never quit. I um, realized that each and every one of us have a very unique and special talent and gift. And I realized in the finance world, there were probably thousands of others like me. But as a puppeteer, um, ventriloquist and singer, I realized I have a very unique gift. I have a unique background, you know, as a black woman growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, I have a unique story that I use to put into my characters. I realized that I would pursue what's unique about me. And now that I'm in the position at Sesame Street and also making music, I can encourage other kids um, and also adults to pursue their unique passions and interests because it's unreplaceable. You did a really good video about taking criticism, which I thought was, uh, which didn't have as much to do with, I mean, it was all about your your career and puppetry, but it, it was deeper than, it, there was more to it than that. It, I think it applies right across the board about sort of learning how rejection is just a step along the way to success, right? I grew exponentially when I was willing to not only accept criticism, but to seek criticism. So I had regular training sessions with master puppeteers from Sesame Street where they would critique our work. But I grew even more when I sought criticism outside of those sessions. So I was constantly sending Marty Robinson videos of myself. I was sending friends like Leslie Carrere Rudolph videos and saying, hey, how can I fix this? How can I make this better? How does this look more realistic? And so when I'm constantly seeking advice, because I also realized that Everyone is always willing to help. It's true. (laughs) They never told me no. No one ever said, no, I'm not going to help you. When you are surrounded by legends and giants who are willing to mold you, take the advice. May sting a little bit, but you'll get better. (laughs) It always stings. Uh, Megan Megan slash Gabrielle, you must have had some real, there must have been some nerves when you got to meet your favorite characters, right? The ones you'd grown up loving. Has that happened? That must have happened already. 
It happened for sure. I didn't realize how much I loved Ernie until I met Ernie. <laughs> and his puppeteer, Peter, was like, hey, do you, do you want to try him? Do you want to hold him? I, I think my soul left my body. And I, th- I immediately thought, no, absolutely not. How could I ever... How could I ever hold Ernie? He's real. You're you do. <laughs> and so he was kind of looking at me, looking at me like you believe this a little bit too much because you're not even willing to hold him. Yeah. Um, I did get to right hand assist Ernie in a few scenes. Yeah, I loved Ernie growing. Ernie was my favorite growing. Ernie and Grover. I always loved Grover as well. Uh, and, and but just why the other thing I was I was watching uh, another story about about uh, uh, the person who's Elmo's puppeteer, right? Get puppeteer Kevin Clash, and just to I meet mean, Elmo, of course, a longtime favorite now. But it wasn't around when I was young, but glad to see he's done done so well. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with having a really popular character as well. You must have thought of that. There's a ton of responsibility, but. I would say the biggest feeling is a sense of gratitude, gratitude that you can perform the character. And um, I also carry a sense of gratitude for the impact that I know she's having. My most special moments that I've had with Gabrielle have been out in the community with real kids that get to interact with Gabrielle. And you can see in their eyes the importance of the character to their development, I take it with the utmost gratitude. Yeah. I mean, when growing up, when I was a kid, I, I, you know, there was no more famous people in the world to me than Oscar and Big Bird yeah. and, and Bert and Erling. They were the Marlon Brandos when I was young. It was amazing. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for, uh, for walking me through that. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, of course. This isn't, I mean, science stories are always interesting because I'll confess, I'm, but I'm no physicist, as you probably know if you listen to the show. But science is always really curious, right? So we're reading this last week and wanted to talk about it. Scientists have discovered the oldest black hole yet, formed a mere 470 million years after the Big Bang. So that's a long, long time ago, like 13.2 billion years ago. The universe is 13.7 billion years old. So there's the math for you. It's it's very old. And it is absolutely massive, 10 times bigger than the black hole in our own Milky Way. Just absolutely, absolutely massive. So they're published last week, a week ago today. Um, and there were theories around these supermassive black holes, which is why we played the Muse song earlier, by the way. Thanks, Kat, for, for catching that one. Um, that there was this theory that supermassive black holes existed at the dawn of the universe. And through a combination of the James Webb Space Telescope, which NASA launched last year, and the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is far older. They teamed up to figure this out. And to explain it, Priya Natarajan is the Joseph and Sophia Fruton Professor in the Departments of Astronomy and Physics at Yale University. Uh, She's one of those who posited this this theory about supermassive black holes many years ago that turned out to be absolutely correct. She's also, also author of a book called Mapping the Heavens. Priya, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm delighted to be talking to you about this really exciting discovery that our team made. Right. And and, and a long time coming as well. But I suppose for listeners to understand, perhaps the easiest question is what a reminder, what exactly is a black hole? Because I think we think we know, but we don't. Right. Uh, so a black hole is a place. It's a location. It's a it's a region of space where mass is so densely concentrated that the gravity is incredibly intense and it is so intense that not even light can escape from it. Why is this one uh, so impressive then? Because it it sounds 
awfully impressive. It's both very old and uh, and uh, very big. Yes. So I think the, you know, supermassive black holes, basically that uh, supermassive just refers to the fact that something that is more massive than a million times the mass of the sun, a black hole. So there is one in the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, that is four million times the mass of the sun. So it's a supermassive one. So it seems like most galaxies in the universe, at least nearby ones, harbor a supermassive black hole in its center. The question is, how did they get there? And how long ago were they planted, if you will, in the centers of galaxies, right? So this one is super exciting because it appears to be a supermassive black hole. And we know this from Chandra X-ray observations in tandem with James Webb Space Telescope observations. So an object was found in two different ways, and it was coincident. The same object was found, and it was found incredibly early. So it's already supermassive. So it's actually 10 million, sort of 40 million times the mass of the sun. And it is in place when the universe is just 470 million years old. That's a very young universe. Because, you know, the age of our universe out to today, from the Big Bang to today, is 13.8 billion years. So we're talking about the very early young universe, and this behemoth is already in place in a galaxy with stars. Wow, and it and it's and it's uh, millions of times bigger than the one in the Milky Way. Obviously, I mean, it is no, just no, no, no. No. It's, it's 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 ten times more. It's ten times. Sorry, 10 40, times. 40 million, four million. Of course, yes, my math. See math, yeah. math, math. You can always get your journalist with math. No the importance of this then, because you've sort of posited over time that this existed, but you, you had to find it, right? You had to find evidence for it. Yeah. So I think part of, you know, the bigger picture where people like me who are sort of theoretical astrophysicists, right, which means we build, uh, we come up with ideas and physics uh, mechanisms by which we can try to explain the phenomena that we see. So the big open question was the origin of these black holes. Where do they come from? So the standard idea that is pretty well supported is that you have a very massive stars, stars that form in the universe, say 10 times more massive than our sun. They form early in the universe. The first stars form. They live out their life and then they leave behind, they explode and they leave behind a little corpse, like a dense corpse, a black hole. But those black holes are tiny. They are maybe 10, maybe 50 times the mass of the sun at most. We don't really know exactly, but we know they are light. And the question is, when you start from a mass that is so tiny, you don't have enough time in the universe to grow it by such a huge factor. So this was a problem already when we were discovering quasars much closer in than this UHZ1 that our team detected. And so, the, you know, they were finding these behemoths, like, you know, when the universe was 2 billion years old, and even that was already a challenge. So in 2006 and seven, with one of my postdocs, we said, well, why, I mean, why not consider making seeds that are really heavy from the get-go? They start life 10,000 times the mass of the sun. The question was, does the physics, are there ways to make such a heavy seed early in the universe? It turns out there was. So it took us a lot of years to try and figure out how um, how that can happen. And there's a simple analogy, right? When you sit in the bathtub and you pull out the plug, you have the water going really fast into a vortex. Something like that happens in the early galaxies. 
the gas goes in really fast and it forms a black hole because it condenses and reaches a really, really compact region in the center. So these are the heavy seats. So we showed that there, why not? We should have heavy seats. And then over the years, we were working on trying to show what signatures these heavy seeds, like how would we know when we saw a black hole? Because when matter goes into a black hole, you can no longer retrieve any information about it. So you have no idea how it formed. I mean, you just see the black hole, you have no idea of its history. So the only thing that can give you a clue is the kind of galaxy it's sitting in. And in 2017, you know, it took many years to develop all the details. You know, many other people, you know, joined in. Oh, by the way, the idea was considered really speculative and not taken seriously in the beginning. But then now it's a bandwagon. Everybody's on it. Lots of great groups working. So the relationship between the black hole and the galaxy that is sitting in is what distinguishes the seeding. And we showed that in 2017. And so we made a prediction and we said, like in the Milky Way galaxy, we have a black hole that is 4 million times the mass of the sun in the center. The mass of the stars, the stars outweigh the black hole by a huge factor, four orders of magnitude more. The stars are really massive in the galaxy compared to the black hole. So the black hole is important right around the center of the galaxy, but the you know, the gravity overall is dominated by the stars. This particular object is different. So here, the mass of the black hole is kind of, you know, only one-tenth. The stars are not hugely outweighing it because it formed heavy. So that's what's interesting about this black hole. It right. seems to validate that theory. For the for the non for the non physicists out there, what does this mean then? I mean, I've often heard James Webb referred to as a time machine, right? Because it looks back to the creation of the universe and so forth. But what does this mean for our greater understanding of you? I think you refer to it as as a new window opening on the universe, and this is just the first crack. Yeah, and I think it's the supermassive. You know, it's basically showing us that supermassive black holes and their parent host galaxies seem to exist at the dawn of time, like well-developed galaxies, right? You expect to see like, you know, if I make an analogy with human lifespan, you expect to see sort of infancy, teenage, adult, and then, you know, sort of geriatrics, right? Here, what we are finding in the very early universe, you are already finding fully formed galaxies with their stars and supermassive black holes. So it's sort of resetting in a way of when things start, the action starts in the universe. And that's why it's so exciting. Right. And and, and where to from here then? Because I gather there's more to be found, right? There's the James Webb is still up there. We've you've you've found this. What next? Yeah. So, you know, um the the team that discovered this object, UHZ1, was led by Akosh Bogdan, who's an X-ray astronomer. And the idea is that James Webb leveraged with Chandra, the telescope that detects X-rays, you know, which is 24 years old, right? These are amazing NASA missions that are still working. So that coincidence, so the reason the X-rays are important, it incontrovertibly establishes it's a black hole. And, and I think we're gonna find many more. And like this one, then one of our other collaborators, Andrew Goulding, Andy Goulding actually pinned it down, you know, measured its fingerprint to determine how far it really was, right? So that really nails it in the very early universe. So I think this combination of finding things with James Webb Space Telescope and Chandra and nailing it is just going to uncover a whole new population. And I'm just like super excited. 
Right. I, I think most of us don't even begin to understand the amount of work that goes into coming up with a theory like this and then goes tr- and then setting out to prove it and the waiting waiting for i mean technology or, or exploration to allow you to actually uh be able to prove it is also very because you started this i mean this goes back 15 16 years now right yeah no no and i think you know really grateful and lucky to be alive now because you know the time between a prediction and its testing or validation is really shrunk because as you said rightly with technology advancing so rapidly right so in the past, you could make a prediction as a scientist and, you know, it may not even get tested in your lifetime, right? So now it's like, what, 18 years? That's not bad. Hey. No, no. Some people spent life, some people had to wait centuries before their, before their theories were proven. Uh, Priya Natarajan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. 